0: This week's parsha, actually, there's two Parsha's this week. One called Tazria, and one Mitsora. Again, like we've seen before, some parshios have some weeks we have two parshios. Uh, throughout Leviticus, throughout Vayikro, we're going to have several parshios. They're going to be double parshios. And it's interesting about this week's parsha, parshas, that it's almost one continuous thought. The source material of the parsha is very similar. If you didn't know that there were two Parsha's and were just reading it one after another, you might assume that it was actually one long Parsha. Now, the word tazria means a woman shall become pregnant, and that's one of the laws that is discussed right off the bat in the first Parsha. And the second Parsha is called Mitzorah. Mitzorah is the state of someone who has become tummy, become impure with Tsaras. We'll see what that means in a little bit. He is called a Mitzorah, and the laws of Mitzorah are discussed in that Parsha, as well as the first Parsha. And just to kick us off, we have the second verse of the Parsha. tells Rashi tells us something very interesting. The verse, um, we, we know last week we've been talking about the laws of kosher animals, what animals kosher, what animals not kosher. And says Rashi that just like all the way back in Genesis, When man was created on day six, after all the other animals were created, says Rashi, just uh, mirroring the process of creation in Genesis, so too we get the laws over here in Leviticus. The animals were created before man. And therefore the laws of the animal, i.e. which animals are kosher, which animals are not kosher, that appears also before the laws of man. And therefore once we finish laws of animals in last week's Parsha, we can go on to talking about the laws of humans in this Parsha. And I think it's just simply, I would say that the lesson for us is that if a man gets haughty and arrogant, you remind him that not only was the mosquito created before him but the laws pertaining to mosquito were also created were also given before him and indeed the talmud in sanhedrin the talmud tells us that the reason why man was created last uh, there's several reasons for that but one of the reasons given is that man has a tendency to get haughty and get arrogant and forget god and forget the fact of course that man is a creation not a creator. We have a tendency to get in our heads and think that our might and our strength of hand gave us all our powers when in reality we don't have any powers of our own. Everything is just a gift from God. And a way to minimize the likelihood of arrogance is to remember that we aren't so special and so important and even the lowly gnat, the lowly fruit fly was created before us. So what are these laws of man that are being discussed here? So the general theme of both are is the idea of purity and impurity, the idea of tuma and tahara. And broadly speaking, if you actually look at the vast expanse of all of Torah, we know the Talmud is broken down into six orders, six sections. And the last of them is called taharos. And that deals with all the laws pertaining to purity and impurity. So, in a sense, we could say that the laws of purity and impurity comprise um, roughly 16% of all of Torah. And I think for us today, living in 2016, it's very hard for us to connect this uh, to, to this idea, to these ideas generally. But also, it's not very relevant to us because with minor exceptions, the laws of purity and impurity are actually not applicable today. Of course, if you're Cohen, as we'll see in a little bit, it's very applicable. It is applicable in, uh, in the laws of family purity as well. But the vast bulk of the laws are only uh, applicable when the temple is in existence. Now, when the temple actually was in existence, this was a huge aspect of Jewish life. Uh, Every Jew at any point in time in history was very keenly aware of what their spiritual status was vis-a-vis purity. There's many different kinds of purity and impurity and in each arena, each section of purity has in it its various states that someone could be in. So you could be impure for this reason and you could be at one of the stages along the purity process so everyone was aware in fact they even had special clothing they used to wear to remind them of where they're holding in purity. of course that's unthinkable to us today but that was a big part of their life and it would dominate their behavior uh, what someone could eat where they can go What can they touch? What happens with the things that they do touch? All those laws that we don't even think about, that was central to life as a Jew when the temple was extant and sacrifices were uh, were part of Jewish living. People had to know what kind of sacrifices they could eat and where can they go? Can they go to Jerusalem? Can they go to the temple? Can they be part of the communities we'll see? and um, what happens if they're in a room or what happened with a dead body etc those laws are very practical uh, during that time Uh, today the laws of purity um, are very relevant actually for a kohen because there's a prohibition in the torah against a kohen becoming in contact with a dead jewish body if uh, a kohen is not permitted to touch a dead Jewish body, nor to even be in the same room as a dead Jewish body, uh, because the laws of of purity mandate that a dead cadaver in a room. There's the law of tumas ohel, that uh, Ohel's is a tent, but the pu- the impurity of the corpse. Permeates everything within that room. So if there's another person in that room, even if they're not touching the dead body, because they're in the same room, they become affected by that impurity and they become ritually impure. Now, for a Kohen who is prohibited against becoming ritually impure, they're actually not allowed to be in the same room as a dead body. Moreover, this room could be the size of a hospital because, uh, halakhically speaking, an entire hospital has the status of one room. Uh, moreover, I know this was relevant to us in Yeshiva in Israel. They had two buildings on either side of one street, uh, and but they were connected sub in a subterranean tunnel because they had in one building they had the uh, the kitchen where they made the food, and in the other building they had the dining room. So how would they ferret the food over? Through this underground tunnel, so halakhically speaking, even though these are separate addresses and separate buildings and separate side of the street, but because they have a channel underneath the ground that connects them, they're considered halakhically speaking one domain uh, vis-a-vis the laws of purity and impurity. If there's a dead body in one building, a kohen would not be allowed to walk in to the other building either, and indeed. Uh, The laws of the uh, cemeteries are very relevant for Kohens. If you're a Kohen, you're not allowed to go to a Jewish cemetery. And if you're a Kohen, moreover, you're not even allowed to walk next to a Jewish cemetery if there is a tree hanging over on one side, uh, covering the – providing shade for the cemetery. On the other hand, uh, and and you cannot walk under that same tree even though you're outside the cemetery. And – if you actually notice if you go to a jewish cemetery you'll notice that first of all uh, along the path separating uh not separating but uh, walking through the graves they'll have on both sides they'll have uh barriers halachic barriers erected so that a coin can walk in between it and it's not considered as if he's walking amongst the, the bodies and be allowed to do that and as a courtesy for the kohen they actually bury the Kohanes alongside a parallel to these walkways so the kohen could go visit his loved ones without transgressing torah law so that's the general idea of purity and impurity and uh, again for us it's very hard for us to internalize it or understand it these ideas are very distant um perhaps we could say that the purity of a person is the state of the software of the soul you know the idea of software and hardware hardware you could see you could interact with the software well we, where is the software is a hard question to answer it's it's in the hardware but you can't see it if you look at a uh, laptop that one of them has hardware one of them has software one of, uh, one of them does not have software you wouldn't be able to tell Just by looking at it, which one's which. And our soul is like the software of our body. Our body, we know what it is, but what makes our body operate? It's the soul. You take the soul out, and the body, of course, is dead. And when we talk about purity and impurity, that has nothing to do with cleanliness. It has to do with the state of your soul. Is your soul, i.e., the software of your body is it corrupted is it infected is it in some way marginalized and what does that mean it means that the soul needs to be cleansed the, the software is corrupted you got to fit it, you got to debug it as the programmers would say and as a general rule of thumb a way of understanding these uh the idea of purity generally many of the commentators have agreed that there is a common thread that is apparent across all the laws of purity and impurity, that something is pure when it has life and vibrancy and vitality, and something is impure when there's death or loss of life or loss of human potential. So as an example, in this week's partials we see about seven to eight different kinds of purity. For women, we see seven, uh, four different kinds of persons. The partial starts off with a woman who is after childbirth becomes impure. Well, beforehand, before she had a child, she had another human within her. And childbirth, and hopefully the child is doing a okay, but after childbirth, There's less humanity in her because the child that was in her is now outside of her. So there's a void where previously there was life and now there's no life and that is manifest in impurity. Uh, Another example we see at the end of Netanyahu's Parsha, a woman who menstruates. Again, there was potential for human life and now that potential is gone and thus automatically impurity descends upon that void. Uh, And the other two for a woman are irregularities in her cycle called a zava. When she becomes a zava, there's a minor zava, there's a major zava. That's the four, rounding out the four for for women. And for men, uh, there's three of them that are specific for men. One of them is a seminal omission, uh, a balkari, of course, that uh, that, uh, dovetails nicely with the theme of death or loss of life. And there is the minor and major zav. This is another sort of emission that a man could have that indicates illness. It's not a seminal emission, it's a different kind of emission. And like the woman, there's a minor and a major state of zav, which uh, which is indicative of minor and major illnesses. But again, the common thread, and I think a good way for us to understand this, bring this a day closer to home, is that purity and impurity are something that are not physical something spiritual Something on the soul and it's a reflection of life and death uh, obviously the uh, the avi avos hatuma the father of the father the grandfather of impurity is a dead body itself of course there's no greater loss of human life and potential than an actual dead body itself uh, but uh for us speaking it's it's very hard to think of um, for most of us practical laws i would say there is one law that is relevant to all jews and that is with respect to going to temple mount uh we know uh, that temple mount is now it's controlled by the muslim watch even though it's under israeli security oversight but if you actually walk onto the Temple Mount, if you go to the Kotel in, in Jerusalem, you'll see there's a, uh, a a ramp going up along the western side, snaking up on top um, of the Temple Mount, of the plateau upon which the temple was built. And uh, as you'll see, there's lots of tourists walking up there, but there's a huge sign that says that according to halacha. According to Jewish law, Jews are not allowed to go up there because Jews today, we assume that everyone is in a state of ritual impurity. Everyone has come into contact with a dead person invariably uh, throughout the course of their lives. And therefore, they are, even though the temple is not there anymore, but the venue of the temple has retained the requirements, the ritual requirements of spiritual purity that are needed for someone to go there and therefore if someone is not ritually pure like we are not we're not we're actually not allowed to go there there are some people that protest uh, that or, or that argue or debate as to where exactly the temple was so they would go to uh they, they say it's it's over here or or it's a couple of feet that way and they are able to walk in the location where they say the temple was not but for, uh, for us, speaking, we don't go, Jews don't go into Temple Mount because of ritual impurity. So that's a, a law that is practical for us. Either way, the verse tells us that a woman who has a son, she is impure for seven days. And on the eighth day, verse number three, she, uh, they circumcise uh, the child. And the Talmud asks, what exactly is the significance or the relevance of the juxtaposition of the laws of circumcision? We already know that a child gets circumcised at eight days. That's not new information. We already know that. And therefore, it seems to be, it seems to be extra. It seems to be out of place. Like, well, what's the relevance of this in the middle of the laws of purity and impurity? It goes off on a tangent, tells us on the eighth day. A child is circumcised so the Talmud tells us something really surprising Talmud in the Book of Nida on page 31b Talmud tells us quote why does the Torah assign the circumcision to be on day number eight and it evokes this juxtaposition it says that because we don't want that on the celebration of the circumcision. Of course, it's a big party. You make a, a bris, you have food, and there's bagels and lox, and everyone's very excited. But if the circumcision was done on day seven, and the father and the mother were still in a state of pure impurity and therefore not allowed to be together, they're going to be sad. And the Torah does not want everyone to be delighted and joyous at the celebration of the bris and the parents are the ones that are sitting there miserable that wouldn't the the torah is not not okay with that therefore the torah says we'll wait to day eight day eight will be circumcision and therefore everyone can be joyous together that's what the talmud says now i think there's a, a pattern here the torah frequently makes laws or at least amends laws in a way that will ensure That peace and love and harmony will reign amongst spouses so we have this law for example and if you hearken back to Genesis in Genesis Sarah overheard something that she found absolutely hilarious she heard the angels foretelling that her and her husband she's 90 her husband's 100 are actually going to parent a new baby and she thought this was absolutely hilarious. And she started laughing. And she commented, how can we possibly have a child? My my husband, he's 100 years old. He's so old, there's no way he could father a child now. And the Almighty was not so happy with this because we know there's nothing that the Almighty cannot do. Nothing is beyond the capacity of God. And if... You hear a good tiding, you're going to have a child, you should say, yes, hopefully the Almighty will give me a child. And you should you should celebrate that. You should be happy. You should be joyous. You shouldn't just ignore it and say, oh, that's a joke. Now the Almighty comes over to Abraham and tells Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Sarah should not have laughed. And when the Almighty repeats what Sarah said he actually changes the information he tells abraham that sarah laughed saying i'm so old when in reality sarah actually said i cannot have a baby because my husband is so old but when god was telling this over to her husband god says that she said that i am so old says the talmud that this is a lesson for us that we are even allowed to lie to change what happened if telling over the truth is going to cause strife between husband husband and wife. And it's interesting because the, we're told elsewhere in the Talmud that the chos mo'shala baruch emes, the signet of God, is truth. And yet here we see that God is saying something which is not true. But the truth is that what is truth? Truth is what's appropriate, what's correct. And in this situation where there is the risk of causing division and discord amongst spouses, the truth, the correct thing to do in this instance is to tell the events in the way they did not happen. Indeed, when Sarah, when she exclaimed, how could I have a baby? She actually said, my husband is 100 years old. There's no way he's having a baby. But what's the true way to retell this story? The true way to retell it is by changing altering the facts a little bit again we see the torah is going to craft the reality in a way to ensure peace and harmony and love amongst the spouses and another example i thought of is uh when we have a suspected adulterous woman this is a woman who was warned by her husband Uh, he was jealous he was suspicious and he warned her do not seclude yourself with this particular man and unfortunately she chose to seclude herself with that man we don't know what happened behind closed doors but we're we're wary we're you know, we, we are suspicious perhaps there may have been some infidelity and the way this is cleared up is there's a whole process in fact there's a whole book called sota that describes it in detail But one of the processes is, part of the procedure is that the woman comes to Jerusalem and they take a a certain potion, which is water, and they take a parchment upon which they write a section of the Torah that includes God's name. They dip the parchment into the water so that the ink dissolves into the water. Essentially, they take God's name and erase it. She drinks it, and that magic potion was able to inspect her to see if she was guilty of infidelity or not. It says the Talmud that god's name, of course it's blasphemous to even think of erasing God's name, but even God's name is erased to ensure um that husband and wife could be at peace together. If there is obviously a suspicion regarding potential adultery that does not does not bode well for love. And harmony to reign in the marriage and therefore we're even told that the laws of the Torah again another example law of the Torah are grown to be in a certain uh, presented in a certain way that love and trust will uh, will be engendered and fostered amongst the spouses nice idea to keep in mind okay so the woman becomes she becomes impure For seven days then followed by 33 days of purity which means that all the blood that she sees over that ensuing 33 days are actually blood of purity and for a female if the woman has a female a daughter then everything's doubled so she has instead of seven days of impurity she has 14 days of impurity instead of 33 days of purity she has 66 days of impurity so she finishes the whole process 40 days after having a boy and 80 days after having a girl uh just parenthetically here why is the woman impure for longer when she has a female than when she has a male i think it goes really nicely with the theme of impurity that we spoke about earlier if if a woman has uh, a son so she has a child and that's very powerful, so when she loses the child, not not because she loses the child, but she's no the child is no longer within her, then she's impure. But a woman is a very powerful vessel of continuity of of life because every woman has a factory to produce new life within her. Thus, when a woman has a daughter, she actually has within her a another female who has more potential to bring life into the world than having a son. And therefore, the void, the spiritual void caused by the child being born is ever greater. And therefore, the impurity that results from that void is even greater, and thus she needs a longer, uh, the, the impurities is longer, and therefore she would need to have more time. Just an idea that goes really nicely with that. Regardless, after the period of purity uh, it has concluded, 40 or 80. She brings two sacrifices. What, what are the two sacrifices? She brings an ola. So the commentaries tell us that she brings an ola because every woman, uh, at least there's a suspicion, when she is in the throes of labor and delivery, she's going to be very angry at the entities that brought her there, namely her husband and God. And because she may have had very... Uh, improper thoughts regarding her husband and regarding god she brings a sacrifice for that additionally there is a concern that again during labor and delivery a woman may have pledged that she will never be with her husband again to avoid a repeat of this and therefore she would bring a sin offering to atone for that either way that's how our parsha kicks off the laws of impurity resulting from a baby. And then the chapter 13 talks about the laws of tzaras. Now, tzaras is improperly translated as leprosy. And the reason why it's improper is because leprosy is a physical malady, whereas tzaras is a spiritual malady. Uh, The Talmud tells us that there's seven sins that cause a person to get tzaras. What are they? Lashon hara. Uh, evil talk, which is murder, swearing falsely, immorality, haughtiness, theft, and narrowness of eyes. To be narrow-eyed means to be upset with the success of others. And as we'll see throughout the parshas, this saras, this spiritual blemish that is manifest in a visible way, can affect a person's body, a person's clothing, and even a person's house. Now, I think just a way to understand, it, a framework for understanding this, which could say perhaps is like this. We, of course, we know we are humans as unique creations. We have aspects of us that is like, a, like an angel, which is namely our soul, our neshama. We have another part of us that's like an animal, which is our body. And this... Uh, These two opposites are fused together to create the human. And that conflict that results uh, of these opposing identities and the opposing agendas of these opposing identities is what creates us in our life and our challenges and our conflict. Of course, to be a human means to be conflicted because you have so many different forces at play – dominating your identity and what you ought to prioritize in life so we have a body and soul now if you were to isolate the body what the body would desire the agenda of the body is what we call sin a sin is when a human acts in a way that placates his animal that he has within him when a human acts like an animal that's a sin well, what does an animal want? Animal wants what's the body? Whatever the body wants, whatever the body wants, whatever the list of of priorities and the agenda of the body, that is what we call sin. And what is the agenda of the soul? Well, that's a mitzvah. Everything that the soul wants to do is included in the category of mitzvah. And therefore, when well, we have Torah. Torah is our guide to choose the path of the soul, the path of our inherent angel within us, and to become more soul-like and therefore to actually change our identity. We, what are we? we? We have to choose which one of these two opposing identities we become or which one of these directions we veer. Well, how do we veer? By our behavior, by embracing one side or the other, that causes us to pivot towards that side or its counterpart. Now, we have Torah. The Torah is there. Torah is a list of the to-do list of a soul. It's exactly what the soul wants in every situation is mitzvahs of the Torah. By us fulfilling the Torah, we are actually choosing to behave as a soul, but also to change our identity, to change the composition of body-soul that's operating within us to move towards being more soul-like. And thus, what's the result? The result is that we actually change the makeup of what we are. We become more like a soul and less like a body. And therefore, mitzvahs become more natural to us. We're told in the Mishnah that mitzvah, goreris mitzvah, doing one mitzvah engenders another mitzvah. The commentators tell us that this is not some sort of spiritual thing. This is just this is a natural result of doing mitzvahs is that we naturally desire to do more mitzvahs. Why? Because there's two properties operating with when we do a mitzvah. Number 1, we're choosing to feed our soul because this is what our soul wants. But number 2, we're empowering our soul and making our soul stronger within us. What's the result of empowering your soul? It's more of a factor in the makeup of who you are as a human. And therefore, what's going to happen next time? Next time there's an opportunity to choose to favor body or soul, you are more naturally inclined to choose what the soul wants than what the body wants, because you are more soul now than you are body, because you empowered your soul with the previous mitzvah. And that's really what the Torah is. The Torah is is a guidebook to feed your soul on one hand, but but, uh, additionally to become more soul-like through each mitzvah. What happens when a Jew is at the peak of their spiritual identity? If they're acting like a soul, if they're in Israel, if they are in a spiritually charged environment, well, then they're like a soul. And their feelings, their senses become soul-like. And therefore, also their illnesses become soul-like as well. If you want to, if you're a body, well then the only thing that affects you is what affects the body. So for example, if you're hungry, right? You're, if you're a body and your body is hungry, then you're hungry. If you're a body and your body wants X, Y, or Z, then you want X, Y. Z. That's what. That's your feelings. That's what. That that's the uh, the response that we have on a sensory level is what we are. But for us, if we're bodies, we don't feel what our soul feels. We could go days and weeks and months and years without studying Torah when our soul needs Torah like oxygen, water, and bread. It's vital for the continuity of our soul, but we don't feel it because we're not a soul. We're a body. What do I care what something else wants? It's not me. But if I become more soul-like, then it all flips on its head. I become naturally desirous of what my soul wants, and I exhibit what the soul feels, and I can ignore... What the body feels, hence Mosho is entirely a soul, is able to go for 40 days and 40 nights without even eating or drinking, without even noticing that he needs to eat or drink. Why would he? He did not identify at all with his body. And this also manifests itself in illness. If we're bodies, then our, if, how do we get sick? We get sick if our body sick. If our soul sick, we don't sense anything. But if we are souls and we connect to our other spiritual half on a deep sensory level well then the sins of the soul are or the illnesses of the soul well that will manifest itself in a tangible way thus what is saras saras is not a physical illness it's a spiritual illness and a spiritual illness is present whenever the soul is blemished but for someone who is in at in a high level of spiritual sensitivity, then the sins that cause the illness to the soul will be manifest in a tangible way. Thus, the Ramban tells us that tzaras only happens to Jews, only happens in Israel, and only when the Jews are at the peak of what it means to be a soul. When you're at that level, then the maladies of the soul express themselves in a tangible way. Thus, the soul's injured, and you see it. You're able. To, there's a sin, whatever the sin may be, one of those seven sins that we enumerated earlier, that causes illness to the soul, and the illness to the soul is manifest with a tangible representation of that illness. Now, for us today, we sin, our soul gets blemished exactly the same way, but we're not aware of it at all. Why? Because the fact that our soul is injured doesn't affect us in a tangible way, unless we are tangibly soul. If we're not tangibly souls, then we don't feel it. It's still there. The illness is still the same, but it won't express itself in a uh, in such a manner that we'll be so aware of it. That's what saras is. In a nutshell, and the Talmud and the Talmud the verse tells us here that all the different kinds of saras of how it is contracted? What happens when someone does get saras? And when someone does have, to, what are the, the halachos that pertain to someone who has saras presently? And lastly, when someone has saras, how do they extract themselves? How do they extricate themselves from it become someone who has been healed from this spiritual malady? So it's interesting here. This is, I think, it's, it's a good way to think about it as a spiritual illness. Because just like if you would have a physical illness, you would go to the physical physician and they would die they, they they would diagnose your situation and give you what they think is the path to a remedy for your illness. When you have a spiritual illness, you go to the spiritual doctor. Who's that? That's the cohen. So the verse tells us when someone has a ace or sapachas, different shades of white splotches that appear up upon his skin. He goes to the Kohen and the Kohen has to examine it and see is this tzeras, is this indeed a spiritual illness of tzeras or not. And what they would do is they would examine it and look at the color and look at the surrounding area and look at the depth. How does this appear in the Uh, respect to the rest of the skin surrounding the healthy skin and he would either declare that someone's contaminated if the uh if the symptoms are there for contamination or they would put someone in quarantine to wait either seven days or 14 days to see does it spread does it get worse the conditions there to either to either declare the person to be healthy spiritually healthy or to uh, or to send them to being a metzora who has this illness of tzaras. So it gives us all the various things that he's going to look at, what the to look at in uh, in his attempt to diagnose it. And there's an interesting law here, very strange law, that tells us in verse 13 that if the kohen actually finds that the person does have tzaras, the person does have this illness, but this illness is so pervasive that it actually covers the entirety of their body, then that person would actually be declared to be pure. This is something bizarre. But again, I I do think it does prove a point that if someone wants to suggest that this section of Torah is dealing with leprosy, a physical malady, then they would have to explain how is it possible that someone who has this illness, this leprosy in their mind over their whole body, how much more so they should be considered to be a leper. If someone has it only on a a small part of their skin, they would be considered ill. Well, certainly someone who has it on their whole body, they would be considered ill. Uh, but according to the Torah, that person would be considered pure, to be tahor. But the question is, why? It's a really strange idea that if someone has it in a small part of their body, they are ill; they're spiritually ill; they have tzaras. Whereas if they have it on the entirety of their body, then they're not. Really strange halakha. So the Talmud tells us that Mashiach, the ultimate redemption that us Jews are awaiting for, will only arrive when the entire government descends to heresy, when there's total corruption across the board. What's the source for this? And it quotes this verse that if the entire body turns white, turns to Tsaras, then the person is pure. Again, this idea that if you have corruption that is so pervasive, so ubiquitous, it's everywhere, it's all encompassing then you actually have counterintuitively you would actually have purity but the question is why what is it about this impurity when impurity conquers all then the result is purity so my grandfather used to say that there's a actually a qualitative difference between purity and impurity truth and falsehood truth and purity they are self stand. They could stand on their own. The Talmud tells us that Emes, the word Emes, which means truth in Hebrew, if you look at how it's written, it's written in a way that every letter either has two legs to stand on or a flat leg which is goes across the whole letter, and thus it is secure. It's stable. Whereas the word Sheker, Sheker ain lowered line, falsehood does not have any legs. The way it's written, it's written in a way that if you actually stood those letters up, it'd all topple over. And the reason is, is that there's inherent, in truth, continuity. Whereas in falsehood, it, it, it cannot exist. How, well, how does falsehood exist? Falsehood can only exist if it has a modicum of truth within it. If there's a little bit of truth, that could give life to a lot of falsehood. As an example... In Numbers, we read about the spies that Moshe sent to scout out Israel, 12 spies, and of course that didn't work out very well. But Rashi there points out that their evil, their lies about Israel, were all predicated with the truth they told about Israel. They had to begin their tale by telling us something good about Israel, because if they didn't have that, if they didn't have the good parts of their narrative, the bad parts, would not be able to stand on their own. So that's the idea. The idea is that evil cannot exist independent of good, and therefore, uh, to us, you know, we look at the degradation of society vis-a-vis Torah values as being troubling. We see that the ideas of Torah and the destiny of Tikkun Olam that we're tasked with fulfilling, it seems to be eroding. Before our very eyes, and that's troubling, because we know our destiny is to bring God into the world, and it seems like the direction, the thrust of society is, ha- is heading in the opposite direction. But the truth is, is that how is the evil, how is that gotten rid of, or perhaps alternatively we could say, how does truth conquer all when? evil becomes so pervasive that it actually has no grounds in truth whatsoever then it spontaneously combusts because it can't stand on its own as an example we know the Soviet Union which was based upon the religion of atheism of of Karl Marx that in its peak of its power seemingly just combusted just erupted just wasn't able to withstand and this I think uh, it's a similar idea that when the just falsehood, there's no remnant, there's no shred of truth left, and the falsehood itself just falls away. And similarly, we see over here that when someone has impurity, impurity has to have purity to ground it. If there's no purity to ground it, then the impurity itself will just disappear. Just a very nice idea here. Now, what happens with someone who is who is a mitsorah so verse uh, forty four and forty five and forty six tell us they have to uh they have to he has to tear up his clothing, not cut his hair he has to dress himself in a specific way he has to announce to other people that. I am NPR, I'm MPR, I'm contaminated, so they shouldn't come close to him. And uh, finally, he has to live in isolation. Rashi tells us a very powerful idea. Someone who speaks Lashon Hura, he receives the punishment of Tsaras. Well, what does Lashon Hura, Lashon Hura do? What does evil talk to? You? You're telling one guy about another guy, and you're putting him in a shameful way and you're causing division you're causing separation between man and his fellow and tragically man and his spouse someone who causes schisms amongst other people causing people to be isolated from each other how should they think about what they did or what are the conditions that are perfect or ripe for them to repent From their behavior they too should have to suffer isolation and by doing that hopefully they will be in a situation where they uh, are likely to repent and thus fix the underlying cause of the illness he fits the cause and of course the symptoms will go away as well that's the first section it talks about saras on the body then we talk about saras on garments when someone has on various different materials they have red or green splotches and the laws essentially say that depending upon circumstances the garment is either declared entirely pure or it's completely burnt or a middle ground where the discolored item itself is torn out and burnt but everything else can still be used and thus concludes this the first section the first parsha and finally the next parasha begins chapter 14 with how someone who is a or someone who has saras, how do they remedy it so it tells us that it happens in various stages first stage is the Kohen inspects them and says it looks like it's healing and they take two birds they kill one of them they take the other one and wrap it together with with um With parts of a cedar tree and various other shrubs. So it takes the cedar tree, which is the tall tree, and various other grasses, which are very low, wraps them together, dips it in the blood of the bird, and sprinkles it upon the Mitzora seven times. That's what it says here. And Rashi tells us that what it's doing is teaching him an important lesson. First of all, this person was like a bird, kept on chirping. And therefore, we use birds in our remedy of his illness to, te- teal him, to teach him that this, you shouldn't you shouldn't do that. The, the bird is the one who's chirping; you shouldn't be chirping. And then we take the tall bird, the tall tree, the cedar tree, and we point out that this behavior is in, in fact rooted in haughtiness and arrogance, and where they where the true human condition ought to be like the lowly grasses, we should be more humble, encouraging the person to achieve humility. The next stage is we shave the head and all the body and all the hair of the person several times. And finally they bring their sacrifices, and when they are completed with the sacrifices and the various procedures done to the sacrifices, they are pure. And there is also a clause here for a mitzorah, for someone who has tzaras but is poor, they can afford the various sacrifices delineated, then they would have cheaper options to accommodate them. Next we learn about or we read about what happens when someone gets taras not on their body, not on their garment but on their home, on the bricks of their house uh, themselves. And uh, just like previous cases that have been the Kohen in, the Kohen has to inspect it importantly in verse 36 it we read about uh, that the Cohen, before he before he gives his final diet uh, final ruling they order that all the items all the appliances that are in the house have to be taken out and the reason is because everything that's in a house that becomes impure it itself becomes impure as well and the torah does, does not want torah is very careful not to cause losses for people and therefore it would take uh, it would take measures to ensure that only the minimal amount of things need to be rendered impure. And there's an interesting problem here. It's A little, little complicated here. But Rashi tells us, you look at the verse, the verse says that when you come to the land of Canaan that I'm giving you, and I will place Tsaras in your home. So it's just presented in an interesting way. So it actually tells us, of course, from the Medrash that the local inhabitants, the land of Israel, they knew the Jewish people were coming and in a frantic frenzy, they hid their valuables. They would take off some bricks, hide the gold, silver, jewels, and diamonds behind the bricks, close it up, replaster it all in that way. They could hopefully protect their valuables from the incoming Jews says Rashi, the Umayyad is going to place the so the Tsaras on the bricks. And the halacha is that if the Tsaras stays in the bricks, you have to actually remove those bricks. And voila, what are you going to discover? That behind those bricks that you removed is a treasure waiting for you. So it's actually not a bad thing, it's a good thing. That's what Rashi tells us. Now, there's another Talmud in the Book of Sanhedrin, the Talmud is listing several Torah mitzvahs that never happened or the situations that never happened and never will happen. So if they never happen, never will happen, they're not practical to us. So why is it written? The Talmud tells us the reason why it's written, for kabel schar, study it and gain reward. Now, simply put, that means you study Torah, you get reward regardless of whether or not you can actually apply those uh those laws in a practical way that's a simple way of understanding but another way of understanding it is that these particular laws though they may not be applicable they contain lessons within them that are applicable so what are these three laws so firstly is the law of the ben sorer umore in the book of deuteronomy we learn about a wayward or rebellious son at various different details of the law but this is a rebellious son at a very specific age of their adolescence. They eat meat and drink wine with bad company. They steal money from their parents. They're very uh, – they, they are recalcitrant son and ultimately they get executed. Thomas says never happened, never will happen. Why is it taught, study it, and gain reward? And indeed, if you actually study those laws in depth, you'll see this very powerful pedagogical, pedagogical lessons – inherit in that uh, in that mitzvah that's the first thing that never happened it will happen second thing the talmud tells us is the irani dachas. irani dachas is a city that the entire city has adopted idolatry to such a degree that they have discarded every, any remnant of jewish life or jewish mitzvahs and there's not even a single mezuzah in the whole city and so the talmud to have a jewish city there's not even one mezuzah in the whole city never happened, never will happen so why is it written it's written to study and gain reward I would argue perhaps that the the lesson to take away from that is the importance of having good neighbors we know that the city of Sodom it had it was bad neighbors the bad neighbors uh, affected everyone who moved there and they became evil like their neighbors perhaps with the city a wayward rebellious city that too is the lesson that if you're in such a city maybe you should think of moving Talmud actually tells us that when you buy a house, the first thing you should do is not look at the chandeliers, but look at the neighbors. Because the neighbors is much more important for your spiritual standing than anything else. Finally, says so the Talmud, what's the third thing never happened and never will happen? Tsaras on the house. To have Tsaras on the house, never happened, never will happen. So why is it written? It's written, study and gain reward. And of course, this seems to be in direct opposition with Rashi. Rashi tells us a whole story. Well, the reason why it happened is because uh, a historical anecdote of times of yesteryear, Jews come to Israel and they they were local indigenous people there who had hid valuables. A whole long story. But the truth is never happened, never will happen. So the question here is on Rashi. Why does Rashi tell us of this whole elaborate reason why this mitzvah happened? When indeed, we know from the Talmud that it actually never happened in a practical way. I want to suggest that there's actually a very powerful lesson here. Indeed, this particular law where someone would have saras on their house that never happened and never will happen. However, so why is it written? It's written to study, learn about it, and gain reward. So let's learn about it. So what, is, what does Rashi tell us? Rashi is telling us about this hypothetical law but he's telling us a reason why it happened and all this is part and parcel of the actual lesson so you can imagine someone gets to israel they settle down in their new home they're all excited and before you know it things go wrong and splotches appear upon his new walls and obviously they're devastated Nicole Cohen and And the coin examines it and puts it on the quarantine. Eventually, he has to actually start disassembling his home. And you think about how sad that is, how tragic it is. New home. You finally got out of Egypt. You spent 40 years in the wilderness. Now you had the 14 years of war and conquest and division of the land. And you fell down. And now this crops up. You have to start disassembling your home. Very sad, very tragic. And, of course, as you start dismantling your home you start thinking, well why does why does god do this to me? And that's of course a very natural emotion for someone to have when bad things are happening to them. And as you continue to take apart your home, you see this glint of treasure. And instantly, you realize that god was not punishing you. God was not making you suffer. God was just pointing you to where the treasure actually lies. And that lesson is very applicable. We have to study that lesson and apply it to other areas of our life. How many times do we have bad things happen to us and we wonder why did God do that to us? And that's, of course, natural. And here we're told a lesson. Study this episode. Of course, the episode itself never happened, but the lesson is important. Study the episode and gain the lesson. The lesson is sometimes what we think is bad is ultimately very good. If you knew that there was gold and jewels and diamonds, a whole veritable treasure behind your walls, you'd love nothing more than to disassemble your home. In our life, we have to realize that the Almighty sometimes does things that we cannot possibly explain and we don't understand why it's good. But the lesson we hear tells us sometimes bad things are really good things. And of course, the Talmud tells us. Famous episode in the book of Rachos, Rabbi Tiva was traveling, and he had three items with him he had his donkey to travel, and he had his rooster to wake him up in the morning, and he had his candles that he tore at night. And he's trying to find a place to stay overnight. And unfortunately, no one wants to give him a place to stay. And Rabbi Kiva's mantra was, Gam Zulatova. this is also very good, the Almighty is doing only good things to me. And unfortunately, Rabbi Kiva, or at least maybe it would look to us, he had no place to stay overnight, and he ends up staying in the forest, and in the middle of the night, more bad things happen to him. A wind comes and blows at his candle, A animal comes and consumes his rooster, and another animal comes and kills his donkey. And if each one of these bad things that happened to him, he says, Gam Zulotovit is also for good. He wakes up in the morning and now he doesn't have his mode of transportation. And what does he do? He goes, starts walking along his way and he sees a frazzled person all bloodied up. He says to him, what's going on? He doesn't, well, you know what happened overnight? There was a group of marauding conquistadors that attacked the city. And suddenly, instantly, Rabbi Akiva He saw the buried treasure, proverbial buried treasure, that is. He realized that had he been granted a place to stay overnight, he too may have been amongst the victims of the mob. And if he had animals or a light that gave away his location, he too may have suffered. He realized, indeed, everything was for the good. It may not have appeared to be good at the time, but it really was good, in retrospect that's the lesson of Tsaras in the home i give another example i like to say you know you have a a parent who sees a child their child running into a busy freeway so what does the prudent parent do they run over and they tackle him and if you just stop this story and flip the perspective of the child, what does the child see? child's running, having a good time, being all safe, being all proper. And the parent comes out of left field and body slams him into the concrete. That's what the child sees. And, of course, we know that the parent loves the child and the parent's trying to save the child. We have a much bigger perspective of the situation, but the child doesn't know of anything highway, none of that. All they know is the parent tackled me into the – the parent obviously hates me. That's what the child thinks. And the difference in intellect between the child and the parent and even the difference in the intellect of an ant or a fruit fly that lives for 12 hours and us is infinitesimally smaller than the difference between our intellect and God's intellect. We don't realize where that child is running into the highway. And God loves us and trying to help us. We pass every, th- everything through, we filter everything through our own tiny little micro-brain and we start questioning God all the time. We have to realize there's a the lesson. The lesson is, George Kabbalah study this case and realize bad things sometimes really are good. And uh, many people, I, I, I think, have had situations in their lives where bad things, what they thought were bad things, happened, happened to them. But in retrospect, it turned out to be very good things. They thought... They wanted to go to a particular school or get a particular job or marry a particular person. It didn't work out and they were devastated, but ultimately it was for the best. And I think that's a very powerful lesson. Maybe it never happened, like the Talmud says, but Rashi does indeed show us how this could be a very powerful lesson for us indeed. The Parsha ends with the rest of the various uh cases of purity impurity like we said a zav and about carry discharges for a man how they become impure what's their status when they are impure how do they become pure anew uh, for a woman there's the nida and the zava and the zava zava katana, the minor and major zava again how does this happen what is the status of the person when they are in the state of impurity? And finally, how do they remedy it? How do they become pure anew? Again, fascinating parasha, fasting ideas to think about and to chew over and to uh, ruminate. And I look forward to next week.